0: Hello, I'm Laura Shavin and this is The Offcut Straw. Welcome to The Offcut Straw, the show that looks inside a writer's bottom drawer to find the bits of work they never finished, had rejected or couldn't quite find a home for. We bring them to life, hear the stories behind them and learn how these random pieces of creativity paved the way to subsequent success. My guest this week is writer, actor and comedian Alex Lowe. Known as the creator and voice behind the character Barry from Watford on Steve Wright's BBC Radio 2 show and Ian Lee's various radio shows, he is also a prolific writer for and performer in comedy shows across all genres. He's written for other performers such as Miranda Hart, Alistair McGowan, Watson and Oliver and Peter Serafinowicz and appeared in various Peter Kay projects in the guise of paranormalist Clinton Baptiste. His list of theatre, TV and radio credits is so long and various that I was losing the will to live trying to decide which ones to include in this introduction, so I gave up. Suffice it to say that I've no idea how he ever has time to sleep. Alex Lowe, welcome to the Offcut Straw. Don't I
1: sound fantastic? Brilliant, I are. love that. <laughs>
0: Actually, I should say, welcome back, because, of course, um, one of the very many acting credits you have on your CV is this very podcast you performed in the offcuts written by John Holmes and David Quantick back in episodes one and
1: three, yes. I don't know if you remember. Yes very much I do remember very much I'm absolutely delighted to be asked because I've always seen myself much more of an actor rather than a writer oh. but um, it's only re- really when you ask me to look at what I've done over the years that I realize I 've written tons and tons and tons of things, and probably in actual fact i'm the majority of my income is from writing rather than acting, which is a real wake up call were <laughs> you telling me that this is the first time you realized that? I think so, because honestly, I probably thought I was writing to earn some money and kill time in between acting jobs. And I've always only ever seen it as a sort of means of getting my stuff out there. So uh, yeah, it was always a sort of second fiddle thing. But um, as I say, increasingly, it's become my main source of income. Interesting. Well, let's start with the
0: basics. Uh, Do you need to have anything in particular around you when you're writing?
1: Uh, I need I think a cup of tea. I drink an awful lot of tea. My dad was a tea taster and tea is very much um, the flavour of my childhood and oh, my. I'm going to stop
0: you right there. Tea taster, explain, yeah. please.
1: Oh, well, my dad was um, expert in tea, he had a very refined palate. Straight from school, he went to work for Thompson Lloyd and Ewart in Upper Thames Street in London. So my childhood was always, you know, the big thing in the evening was my dad bringing in the tea and nowadays of course you know me being sort of middle classy and media media like it's mostly wine my <laughs> wife and i <laughs> drink much of my shape but growing up it was always the thing you know dad's making the tea and there would be this sort of ceremony of warming the pot and he'd always had the most fantastic blends of tea when we were teenagers it was always his you know eternal you know, diatribe against my brother and my tea-making abilities. And very often it would be, you know, his, one of his catchphrases was, have I taught you nothing when we'd bring <laughs> in stewed cold tea? So, uh, yeah, tea is, I drink so much tea, it's ridiculous. OK, well, let's kick off with your first off-cut. Can you tell us what it's called, what genre it was written for, and when it was written? This is uh, a sketch called uh, Roman and Nancy. It was written for a BBC TV comedy show. Uh, for Alastair McGowan, uh, called Euro two thousand and four, and it was written, unsurprisingly, in two thousand
2: and four. Interior lockup. Nancy Dell'Olio is forced into the room by Roman Abramovich and a Russian heavy, and thrown to the ground.
3: Hey, easy on the lady. No manners, these Russians. Introduce yourself. Ivan Tepumperov. That's as maybe. But tell her your name first. Oh. Nikolai. Sorry, Nancy. I despair of today's villains. You can say what you like about our generation of gangsters, but we were never good to our own and always made sure we only ever hurt our mums. Lightweights, this lot.
4: Uh, What do you want?
3: What? We want you to be comfortable. Now we've got you some essentials. Bread and water, a toothbrush, a comb, hairspray, some foundation, an eyeliner, an oxygenating peel-off face mask, a skin toner and replenisher, a choice of lipsticks, and an Arabian Glow face bronzing gel. Is there anything else Nikolai can add to his list?
4: How can I put it on? I
3: need a mirror. That's right, Nikolai. She's supposed to put on her makeup right now, mirror. Actually, thinking about it, stick, Trowel on the list and all.
4: What do you want from me?
3: We want you to manage Chelsea.
4: What? Why me?
3: Simple. We think you could add something. You see, speculation has been feverish around our manager. The press everywhere. I want the heat off. Business as usual. Nothing to see here.
4: You want me to bring something bland and unnewsworthy to the manager's office?
3: No, he can continue managing England. We want you to translate for Claudio Ranieri. You are the only one who can understand him. He's staying with your help.
4: And if I refuse?
3: Well, that's a pretty face you've got there. We wouldn't want to see it spoiled by, say, uh, confiscating your blusher. (gasps) You wouldn't. Lovely tan, so easily ruined with a dusting of light-colored foundation.
4: How could you, you savage?
3: (laughs) Think about it.
4: Oh, Okay, I'll do it.
3: Lovely jubbly.
4: But please, keep the pale powder puff away.
3: I told you. He stays in the England job.
0: (laughs) You seem to know alarmingly a large amount about makeup.
1: That was one of my first things I thought when I heard this. I think I just Googled all that stuff. Oh,
0: don't disappoint me. I wanted to just go. Actually, darling, I used to work for Max Factor.
1: No, yeah, that was for Alistair McGowan and Ronnie Ancona. Mm. And I mean, I, I wrote a, a lot for them. They were, they were very good for me when I started. They were good to me. I used to write on The Big Impression, and then I wrote for Ronnie Ancona's TV series. But this particular one never made it because of a bust up with various agents, and I was some collateral damage. Ooh. So I sort of got dropped. It was one of those things you know when you're a young writer you know I'd not long started writing and you take advice from professional people which you know nowadays now I'm longer in the tooth I probably wouldn't have taken that advice but What uh, was the advice if you don't well, mind Well the advice it? was, Oh, well, it's long and complicated but I think Alistair had left an agent and she had the hump and said right you're not writing on his TV series they're not offering you enough money and of course at the time you think oh god I just want to write something it's a great opportunity but because mm. i just joined her I thought well look either she's my agent or she isn't so if I'm not going to listen to her I might as well leave and I thought well I'm not going to leave I've just joined okay if you think it's the right thing to do so I sort of cut my nose off to spite my face so uh, I wouldn't do that again but you know you don't know these things when you're a young man do you?
0: But um, 2004, which is when it was written, that was Mm. around the time when we first encountered the comedy character that you're probably most well known for, Barry from Watford. Yes. That was 2005. So where did he come from?
1: Well, I always wanted to create my own comedy character that I could do. And he was based on, rather cynically, it wasn't something that grew and grew and it it was sort of irresistible. I thought, what can I do to (laughs) get my face on the telly or my voice on the radio, and uh, it's based on all my Cockney forebears from Southeast London, who during the war. There was a, a move to get people out of the East End to the suburbs and the Greenbelt and they moved out to South Harrow. So growing up, I was surrounded with this sort of in a rather old-fashioned way about the East End, and and you know after we, I was well, I was born, lived for a year in South Harrow, mm. and then we moved to Pinner, and I think after that we was regarded as a bit poshy. They're a bit poshy. That <laughs> look, yeah. So it's based on those guys who I, you know, really missed. None of them are around anymore, and I don't think you hear those voices so much now. Mm. It's a certain old Cockney style. It has um, a
0: similar tone to it in
1: Catherine Tate's grandmother. Absolutely,
0: figure. absolutely. They'd be almost married to well, each other.
1: They would be very well suited. She she once played um, Barry's wife Margaret when I did oh. my original uh, Edinburgh show, but I started doing it by phoning in Ian Lee's LBC show. I used to do a show on XFM on a Sunday and Ian once phoned up as his one character Mike from Camden, which sounds a bit like Ian Lee from Muswell Hill so um, he tried to trick me. So when he went on LBC I thought, I've always wanted to try this character and I phoned up as Barry and I was saying, you know, you're talking about slugs, how to get rid of slugs, Ian. One thing I know, it's um, my wife's perfume. One whiff of my wife's charms Charlie, and those slugs are <laughs> curling up you know <laughs> and so we did this whole thing and then I thought well I'm going to do a show I want to do a show in Edinburgh so he and I had this plan that Barry would say something semi-rude not really very rude and Ian would go mad and ban him and it caused such a furore that people were phoning into Clive Bull's show later going that like, that Ian's out of order that old man that old man what he's done for this country and, and you, you banned him because he said the word poo, and you banned him, and he's out of order. So, we did this thing, and I did a show for Edinburgh called Let's Talk to Barry, where it was an excuse to knit together all these moments on LBC, speaking to Ian, who's a brilliant improviser. And um, my friend Aaron Sherman, who's a prosthetics guy, designed Barry's face. He taught me how to put the bloody thing on, which I mean, I'm sure if he saw me doing it, he'd have a fit because I, you know, sometimes virtually on upside down. The way I put the thing on But over many years I would go out into the comedy circuit And at Edinburgh and what have you And the occasional TV appearance And put on this prosthetic And um, so Barry was a, a genuine attempt To get a sort of comedy character That I could play And I always think a bit like Tootsie Who turned into a woman I thought well what can I do If I'm not getting much work Just as me A nice bloke from Pinner What could I do I'll turn into this old man Right, time for your next off-cut. Can you tell us what this one is? Yeah, this is a BBC radio sitcom I was commissioned to write in 2003, called Alex Lowe's Legends.
5: Today, Gary Spear lives in Kent with his second wife, Tracy. Whilst his motorcycle stunt days bought him a beautiful Tudor-style five-bedroom house, three horses and Sky Interactive, it also left him with two legs made of a semi-durable steel alloy compound. The scars have healed, but nowadays Gary can only walk very slowly. I managed to catch up with him in his back garden and asked him about the early days. Tell me, Gary, how did you go about training to be a daredevil?
3: Well, I started off pretty lightly, you know, at school, deliberately not carrying chairs correctly, running with scissors, that sort of thing. But as I got older, I took it more seriously, Um, not tying my hair back when using a Bunsen burner, chewing during PE, then always, religiously in the evenings, a good four hours of concentrated knockdown ginger. And your first bike? A Tonka three-wheel. No, your first motorbike. Oh, right, yeah, a Kawasaki. The moment I turned 16 I got one. My inspiration at that time was Regal Monmouth. (laughs) The legendary regal
5: Monmouth, the undisputed king of stunts, who still holds the record for most fractures in a single jump.
3: (laughs) Yeah, one of the greatest days of my life was when my dad came home with a regal doll and Harley Davidson from Woolworths, £1.99. It all came apart, you could dismantle it, put it all back together again. Phibias, coccyx, the lot, they gave you four spare patellas. Mm. He was from Colorado, so I looked it up in the Children's Britannica, it said population 17 million a state of extraordinary natural beauty average rainfall 18.9 inches per annum home to a variety of fauna see also coniferous rainforest page 434 Ah, I remember it to this day I had visions of Regal in Colorado riding through coniferous forests in heavy rainfall with Lindsay Wagner on the back of the bike oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or Jacqueline Smith or Debbie Harry with those sort of cut down denim shorts did you ever meet him? Or naked. Yeah, I saw him close up at the Kia or a big truck bully off at Western Park in 1977. I was there. And I managed to get his autograph. He wrote, Watch the Soaring Regal, which was a play on words, you see. And, you know, I kind of took that as an order.
0: So, <laughs> written in 2003, Alex Lowe's mm. Legends. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, um, Emma Kennedy, the writer, suggested that we could put something into uh, Radio 4 comedy and we did very many drafts of it and nothing happened with it. I don't know why. I think it's got some really funny bits Mm. in it. And then I tried to uh, write it for TV and that hit a brick wall. Mm. Just one of those things. Was
0: it going to be a different legend each episode?
1: Yes. Ah, Very nice. Yeah. Which is a great idea. I must get back to Emma Kennedy. It's a great idea. Different legends and a sort of mockumentary about each of them. Yeah. Presumably, you now have a profile on BBC Radio 4. So maybe
0: the title, Alex Lowe's Legends, might have some kind of cachet.
1: Well, I suppose so. It's just, it takes so bloody long, doesn't it? I mean, any writer will tell you to go through the BBC. And you know, I had um, my Barry from Watford show which was, it took forever to be commissioned, and then to write, and then to set a recording date, and then to put it on, and we only had four episodes, which absolutely stormed it. It was great, and we had great tweets and reviews, and we had, oh, we had all sorts of people loving it, and then it sort of, nothing happened with it. so. I mean, whilst I listen to Radio 4 all the time and I've worked on Radio 4 a lot, it seems like an enormous way round getting your stuff on mm. to an audience when there's so many other platforms nowadays, nowadays. Yeah, definitely. I often think I'm so glad that in my lifetime we, we have all these platforms now because writing back in those days, there was only you know one or two outlets for it. But this was
0: as I said written in 2003 which is the earliest piece you sent me so
1: were you a a writer as a child much at school did you do Oh god writer? yeah I really did. I mean, English was my favourite subject. And I mean, I just, the thrill of being asked to write a composition. That was always composition on a Friday at school. Mm. I used to really go to town with my writing. When I was in the Cubs, the only badge I got was the entertainer's badge. (laughs) And every Monday, I mean, very often, (laughs) there would be Arcade would announce as a special treat, Alex Lowe now is going to get on the church (laughs) stage for the final half an hour of Cubs this week. And yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It seemed like longer to the Cubs, let me tell you. um, And perform some of his comedy. So I was always writing stuff. And my brother and I, I mean, in 1979... Mm -hmm. We came runners up in the Walls Cornetto Junior Talent Contest. Uh, My parents used to take us to, um, it was a sort of upmarket Butlins called the Sussex Coast Country Club. It had been a Butlins because my cockney dad in the 50s, that's where they all went, holiday camps. And quite rightly, you know, from my brother and me, it was fantastic to go to this, you know, and have activities. But we won this thing which sent us through to the regional finals at the Blue Waters holiday camp in Seaton in Devon, where people from all over the country came to pete in this junior talent contest so we we wrote our comedy for then i mean we we mined the two ronnie's (laughs) joke book but it was me playing the piano my brother playing the drums and then me doing my impressions (laughs) and we were pipped by some ghastly creature in a in a leotard doing macavity cat (laughs) Uh, <laughs> but you're not bitter. That's
0: the important <laughs> no, thing. You're not bitter. I still
1: can't get over it. Yeah, from a very young age, I was doing that, and I always remember driving back in the car, and my dad saying, "You know what? Don't belittle what you did. That was a nationwide competition." And, you know, and I thought, from "Then yeah, yeah, that's what I want to do for a living." So yes, yeah, so to answer your question, I've been writing jokes and comedy stuff for years. Well, let's move on to your
0: next offcut. Tell us about this one, please.
1: Yeah, talking of jokes, this is uh, some jokes, material I wrote for the radio presenters Jamie, uh, Jamie Thixston and Harriet uh, on the London station Heart Radio's breakfast show where I was a kind of staff writer for three years uh, and this is from around 2008.
2: In showbiz news, Madonna topped the music rich list with Barbara Streisand in second, beating Celine Dion by a nose.
5: Whilst hubby Guy Ritchie organised her 50th birthday party, Madge said she didn't want anything flash, just a humble gathering in her own home. Sweet. It was just a question of choosing which home, in which country and in which continent.
2: Sadly, later in the year, Madge and Guy split up, though happily he's invited the family over for Christmas to enjoy a massive turkey. He's showing swept away after lunch.
5: Daniel Craig's co-star in the new James Bond film, Olga Kurilenko, revealed that he has to wear stacked shoes, so he's taller than
3: her.
2: In the new movie, Bond has a car loaded with grey features, guns, rockets and computers, but most usefully, a cushion so he can reach the steering wheel.
5: Walt Disney announced it's to make a fourth Pirates of the Caribbean film, amid talk that Captain Jack dies on the ship.
2: When asked about the rumours of the ominous wooden plank, producer said, yep, Kieran nightly we'll be back in it again. In pop news,
5: Boyzone kicked off their reunion in Belfast. Between them, the lads desperately tried to lose 11 stone of excess weight, but in the end, they let Shane stay.
2: In telly news, Ricky and Bianca came back to EastEnders.
5: Patsy Palmer said it was great to see that big famous square in Walford, or Pat Butcher as she's known. In other news, Kirsty Young bid £1,400 in a charity auction for a pair of
2: Jeremy Paxman's pants. Gordon Brown said he was glad to see Jeremy's pants come under the hammer. It's just a shame Paxman wasn't in them at the time. And there'll
1: be more showbiz, more gossip and more laughs
5: next year. Happy Happy Christmas, Christmas, everyone. everyone!
1: (laughs) Having said I was a brilliant uh, Gag writer
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's perfect timing Isn't it (laughs) I
1: I, I think the thing is That uh, Heart No disrespect to them But You know Your instinct As a kind of Joke writer Is to write The funniest thing You can think of Mm. But on a very Mainstream show Like that That's not what they want They want something That sounds A bit like a joke (laughs) But You can never Really be pithy enough Mm. to, To make it Yeah I mean it was really hard. It was really—I've got say—really hard and harder jobs. But every night sitting there. I'd go to the sort of News Now website and picking out the very, very lightweight showbiz gossip mm. and writing these gags. Night after, I used to do sort of week on and a week off, share it with another writer. And to force yourself into the minds of the sort of heart FM demographic, it was really hard. And I think, actually, it blunted my comedy brain for a while. And it was kind of really exhausting. But God knows, when you're not acting, to have that to do of an evening to earn money, it was a real... Sent. Mm.
0: Well, you had your own radio show on XFM. Was that a music mm. show or was that lots of speech and original content?
1: Yeah, it was a music show and we'd not long had our kids and of course I was never At that time listening to Any indie music Or rock music or whatever it is they play Whatever they they call it nowadays (laughs) Um, But you know I was listening to bloody Thomas the Tank Engine and all the rest of it at the time And then turning up there Exhausted Uh, and I used to do It very much as a sort of topical comedy Show Mm. where it, it Would be me going through the week's news But of course on the Saturday Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant and Carl Pilkington Would have the slot and they, you know, they absolutely soared. And I think they spent all the budget on that. So on Sunday, I'd come in and say, Look, can I have someone? Is there anyone can come in and I can speak to? Because, you know, you have to pick your material up off the floor, run with it on your own, and then say, Yeah, now this is the sound of Blink 182. With, you know, it was really, really exhausting for not very much money. And I was kind of relieved when it ended. But, you know, it was great discipline to have to sit down and write jokes throughout the week. And thrilling to have your own show. How did you, know? you get but, your own um, show? I, my friend Reese Thomas, I was in Fun at the Funeral Parlour for BBC Choice. And he used to be a sort of sidekick on the XFM Breakfast Show. And he said, would you come in on a Friday and just do a little bit of topical chit chat? And then one day the producer said, do you want your own show? Which was unbelievable. And um, so I did that for a couple of years. But it was really, really exhausting. So I was kind of, I mean, I'd love to do it again now, I think if I had another opportunity to do something like that, I would pull out all the stops. All right.
0: Time now for another off cut. What's this one?
1: This is from a TV drama I wrote in 2017 about Bob Monkhouse and Diana doors called Two Nice Boopadoops, which was intended to be part of the Urban Myth series for Sky Atlantic.
6: Interior, Playhouse Theatre stage, afternoon. Bob on a stool in the wings listening to Diana rehearse a comedy monologue. We see the BBC radio script on his lap. It has Calling All Forces as a title, with cast list and technical details below. He is absentmindedly doodling on it as he listens to Diana on stage reading from the script.
4: My mother is a great believer in make, do and mend. What with rationing, she did her best to cover me head to toe with whatever she could get hold of.
6: As she reads in the background, we're with Bob, still doodling on the cover as he listens.
4: I recall she made me wear a long dress she managed to get from a sale. Which ship it came from, I don't know, but it was definitely a sale. Bob nods to himself at the gag. And boy, when I put it on for the Navy boys, I really did command the fleet. Over Bob's shoulder, we see what he's
6: drawn. It's a Tex Avery-esque cartoon of a hungry fox eyeing a Betty Boop siren. Bob looks up. On stage, Diana is wincing. She has stopped reading and is shielding her eyes from the theatre lights as she peers out front to Worsley somewhere in the auditorium. Sorry, I'm not sure about that line. Bob is taken aback. He pipes up from the wings. Beg your pardon? Diana turns and peers into the wings at Dennis and Bob. I really
4: did command the fleet. Is there a better line? Is that rude to ask?
5: It's, when I wore that
3: sail, I really did command the fleet. No? Oh, hold on. Um, how about um, that dress? It was one sail all the sailors wanted to hoist.
6: We hear disembodied laughter from Worsley and a couple of others echoing in the auditorium.
4: Diana is delighted. <laughs> Very cheeky. You're one of the writers, are
3: you? I'm Bob Monkhouse and this is Dennis Goodwin. If you like this script, we did indeed write it. If you didn't, it was Frank Muir and Dennis Norden.
6: Diana's point of view is she truly takes in Bob for the first time, sucking on his pencil. He is funny and handsome.
3: Seriously, let me go away and type up a new line. Thank you. Glad to have you. Glad to have you. You haven't.
4: Yet.
0: (laughs) So what's the story behind this? Is Bob Monkhouse a particular idol of
1: yours? Well, funny you should say that, because I think I was on one of those talking head shows on Channel 5 or Channel 4 or something, where they were doing a rundown of the greatest stand-ups ever. And I said, oh, God, I thought he was just a kind of cheesy game show host. And then which was then followed by people like Frank Skinner and all the greats going, Bob Monkhouse was one of the greatest ever entertainers. So, I mean, my age group, might remember him as that kind of cheesy Celebrity Squares game show host. But I've since sort of realised that he was a joke writing machine. But I was asked to write this by a comedy producer to pitch it for um, this Sky Atlantic series because I'd written the show about Bob Monkhouse for the Edinburgh Festival, which someone had commissioned me to write. So I don't really have a fascination with Bob Monkhouse. It just so happened I'd written this thing for Edinburgh. Were you in the and thing And someone for came Edinburgh. to me about this. No, I wasn't. It was a guy called Simon Cartwright, who is the most brilliant Bob Monkhouse impressionist. Mm. But these people came to me and said that it would be a lovely idea if there was an urban myth written about Bob Monkhouse and how he met Diana Dawes. And this is all true. I mean, they did work together and, and that clip is from a moment when he was writing for Calling All Forces. Mm. But in the end, it was rejected because, you know, Sky Atlantic would have to appeal to an American audience and it was decided they didn't know Bob Monkhouse or Diana Dawes.
0: Hi, this is Laura. Sorry to interrupt, but if you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe to the Offcuts draw, give us a five-star rating, leave a review, tell your friends about it. All that stuff's really important for a podcast like this. And visit offcutsdraw.com for more details about the writers and actors and to find out about future live shows. Thanks for your support. Now back to the interview. Theatre is obviously something yeah. you know an awful lot about. That's where your performing career started, didn't it? That's correct. Yes. You didn't come from a theatrical family. Your tea-drinking dad wasn't a an agent
1: on the side or anything. So no. how did that happen? Well, I one day said to my parents, I wanted to go to a drama school. I'd heard about one in Pinner called the Studio School. And it was like, from the age of 11 to 18, it was a very, very serious, old fashioned drama school training. And I just used to do this as a sort of hobby. And there was an agent attached to that drama school, though, you know, most of the people didn't go on to do any professional work. But my parents, who Really, as you say, not remotely theatrical, very lower middle class, suburban people, grafters. This idea of being a sort of flouncy actor was kind of alien to them. But bless them, they were my chaperones. And, and one of the things I did was uh, audition for another country in the West End. And I was forever being told that my vowels weren't quite public school enough. But I managed to get in there and work with Kenneth Branner and Rupert Everett. And, you know, after that, I had a friendship with Kenneth Branagh and he took me on with the Renaissance Theatre Company after I finished my degree. And at the start of my career, he was absolutely instrumental and a very, very kind, decent bloke who sort of, when I started, you know, after my frankly awful degree at Leicester Polytechnic in drama, you know, he really kick-started my career. So to answer your question, yeah, my parents were were very supportive and I did Mansfield Park for the BBC Mm. in 1983 and managed to, to become a child member of Equity when I was about 14. So yeah, I've never really done anything else. Although, as I say, I'm always looking over my shoulder, even now thinking I'm going to have to stop this. (laughs) I've been doing it since I was about 12. (laughs) I often feel I'm having the longest apprenticeship anyone has ever had in this business because I've done so many bits and pieces as a writer, stand up, I've done kids' shows, I've done some films and all this sort of stuff. And I I often feel I'm ever the bridesmaid, never the bride. But it's always been a sort of incremental climb. Your time will come, Alex Lowe. Your time will come. Oh, I hope so. Of course it will. I hope so. But, you know, that's why it's so lovely. People like you, Laura, you know, asking me these questions. Because I just feel that I've been sort of plodding along all this time. And you know, never been lucky enough to be like a lot of actors and writers born with a silver spoon and a, a trust fund to sort of keep me going. I've always had to um, diversify as a writer and a, I mean, breakfast show writer and mm. you know stand up and sort of be crapping myself in the back of a pub somewhere about to do stand up just to just to kind of make ends meet. All right, let's move on now and have another off cut. What's this one, please? Yeah, this is uh, a sketch called Police Operation, which I wrote for the double act Watson and Oliver for their BBC TV series, around about 2011.
3: Interior, Police Superintendent's Office.
4: Come. You ready? Yep. Oh, yes. Massive opportunity, this Lorna. Great, because they're all in the briefing room. Scotland
6: Yard are there. Sussex CID have just arrived. And I'm sure Yorkshire and Kent have sent about 30 detectives between them.
4: Let Operation Pouncing Tiger commence. <laughs> <laughs> what? Who named it that? M- me? Why? Operation Pouncing Tiger! Well, what's wrong with that? It's a bit melodramatic, isn't it? Oh, what? Oh, don't tell me that now. I'm about to address 50 senior British policemen and a contingent from Interpol. But I just think it's a bit, you know, over the top. Not good. Oh, God, Lorna. Well, think of something else then, quick.
6: Well, uh, I
4: don't know. OK, how about just Operation Tiger? No, 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 it's too overblown. We're not on silent witness.
5: They're all waiting for you, ma'am.
4: Okay, I'm coming. Go! Oh, quick, Lorna, think. We've got about one minute. Um, Operation, um, operation... Oh, Hold on, I made a list here somewhere. Got it! Right, uh, pouncing tiger, you don't like. Leaping puma? Nope. Running bear, growling bear, dancing bear, singing bear, eh? Doesn't even make sense. It's the whole jungle animals thing. Maybe go more domestic. Okay, um, Operation, um, Snarling Dog. No. Barking Dog. Scratching Dog. Itching Dog. <gasps> Itchy Dog. Scabby Dog. No, no. Dirty Gerbil. Stinky Cat. Uh, Operation Smelly Rabbit. Maybe forget animals.
3: Ingrid looks for inspiration on her desk.
4: Operation, uh, Biro. Uh, Operation Post It Note. Operation Fat Hummus? What about just simply Operation Burglar? Operation Catch Criminal? That's too literal, too obvious. It has to be something in code that the criminals won't guess. I went to a meeting about it.
6: Right, so something they'd never guess. Oh, hold on, Ingrid. I think I've got it.
4: Operation. 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 Operation! Liking your style, sister. Operation, Operation. Oh, that is so brilliant. Why didn't I think of that? You are so clever, Lawns. Honestly, I'd never have thought of that. Will you tell them I said that? Defo. It's sort of... What's it called? Um, lateral thinking, isn't it? Yeah. I've always been good
6: at that sort of thing, and you know, quizzes and that.
1: <laughs> <It> overblown <laughs> it Went on and on
0: and on There were some good lines in that Yes, probably needs a bit of an edit But uh, no, yes. Good, yes, good yes, yes Did yes. you write a lot of stuff for Watson and Oliver then?
1: Well, yeah I wrote um, my. I wrote a sketch for them Which is my pride and joy Which is the first sketch on the show where one of them has, you know, like uh, in the 40s, 50s, where women drew on eyebrows with a small pencil. I mean, they do nowadays. Yeah. But you know that sort of little pencil? Yeah. And the idea was that every time this woman had to change her expression, she quickly had to rub it out and draw another <laughs> line. So one of them is saying to the other one, no need to look shocked at me. And you cut back to it, and she's drawn shocked eyebrows. And you look quizzical, turned around. And she's quickly rubbing that off and drawing a wiggly line which I was very proud of. But I think one of the things with that was, like a lot of things, there was not enough budget. And it looked, whilst they're great, great performers, I have no problem with them, you know, some of it looked so cheap. And and I wrote a, a sketch about NASA, I remember, and all in the control room. The idea was they were trying to get Apollo 17 back. And... Um, the idea was that one of the women in a very British way, well, well they're all pulling together, all these Americans creeps in and says, um, yeah, I'd love to stay, but it, um, I've got to get off. If you remember, I only had half an hour for lunch. <laughs> if I could just get away. Yeah, really gutted about not being able to get them down. And it was a sort of idea of that kind of British thing about, oh, you know, very sort of petty. Yeah. And I just remember the budget. To recreate this NASA, which I had a vision of a sort of 1960s control room with everyone smoking and those are white shirts with black ties and nice haircuts, was a picture of a rocket in the background, <laughs> you know, on a poster. <laughs> I thought, oh no, that's not what I intended. But um, yeah, I, I would like to see sketch comedy coming back, but it seems to me that there's not a huge outlet for that. Well, you've moment,
0: written, your your CV says you've written an awful lot of sketches, Particularly for impressionist people,
1: but impressionist like topical yes. sketch shows.
0: You you do impressions, though, don't you? Why
1: why are you not in them, or are you? Oh God, I do. The only impressions I do there's no call for them anymore one of them is now then I was now about then good surely. <laughs> yeah and uh, the other one is of course we are now indebted to oh. Messeter, and we'll have one minute laura to so that yeah, was uh, well that nicholas must have worked, that one
0: worked up to this year basically before he
1: died it did yeah so i mean i that's nicholas I parsons to any point really. it, <laughs> just in case so i mean i'd not I do voices, but I don't really do impressions. Well, according really to various bits
0: of internet paraphernalia I could find, you have done or do mm-hmm. Barack Obama, Tom Cruise, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Jeremy Corbyn, Jacob well, mogg to name but six. The,
1: now, I have to say, those are all characters I've done for the Christian O'Connell Absolute Radio show. Mm-hmm. Which were sort of deliberately inaccurate. Ah. So, you know, Barack Obama was just my standard American. You can't come me, shut him a gun! <laughs> you know, it was not really. It's <laughs> not very Barack Obama. Nothing like him. And, uh, you Cruise know, Prince like? Harry I can't and the can't like wait was to just. Hear that? Pl- What's Tom, Cruise? Tom Cruise, it was just like this and kind of. Ooh, hop, 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 yeah, a little bit mad, a little bit mad. Bingo, bango, bingo, bango, bingo, hop! So, um, none of it was very accurate. Well,
0: let's move on to your next offcut now. What's this one?
1: Yeah, this is uh, a speculative uh, TV sitcom I wrote with the actress Lizzie Roper uh, in 2016 and it's called Rude.
2: Interior Alex's cafe kitchen off the Pilates studio. Alex, 46, is with his newish girlfriend Poppy, 23. She has those overdrawn painted on Groucho Marx eyebrows.
6: You know, I've done a lot of work on my core and it's like only now that I'm really channeling the inner essence of who I am. Sonny, my Kathkali teacher, says he's never seen anyone develop their pelvic floor like me. So I just, I really feel like I'm growing. I couldn't meet more like me at the moment. And on top of everything, I feel like there's a conversation going on between me and like Uber me. And me's like, I'm not sure. And Uber me's saying, you can do anything. And I'm like, yeah, I can. But everything is like just stopping me. So what do you think Uber me says? Um, go for it. Yeah. I'm like, oh, you're so wise. <laughs> S-
5: sorry, are you talking to me now or Uber me I mean uber you.
6: I'm talking to you. You're my chunchy. (laughs) Oh, good. You know, I was thinking, like, okay, so you're really, like, experienced and yet you're like a puppy. Like one of those kids, like, with a huge brain and a massive heart. You know where you find those kind of people? Great Ormond Street? In, like, a temple. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, sorry. (laughs) A Tibetan temple? A Chi temple? We should go. We should totally go. You should take me to Thailand. Hmm. Sounds a bit pricey. No, that's what I'm saying. It's, like, really cheap. Just you and me. Oh, and you know who we should also take? Uh, Uber me? No, Sunny, my teacher. Oh, you were joking. So
2: funny. I need juice. She reaches up to get the juicer and we see she has a tattoo just above her backside, in ancient Hebrew. Oh, that's new.
6: Oh, it's an eternal gift to you. What could be more permanent than this as a sign of everlasting love?
5: Wow. A- Alex in Hebrew?
6: Well, it's not actually Alex, but it amounts to the same thing. It means life, which in effect is you. Right. You're my life, my love. Wow. So, how about you?
5: What? Oh, I'm not good with needles. You know, that, that drill, indelible ink under the skin thing.
6: Oh, it doesn't hurt at all. My friend Suki's got Elvis on her shoulder. And do you know what's on Sunny's back? Sure. I'm going to, Vishnu. Oh, bless you. Vishnu, the Hindu god.
5: Oh, that Vishnu. Oh.
6: Yeah, and this will bind us.
5: No, I I just feel silly. A big fat bloke with a Chinese menu on his back.
6: It won't be a Chinese menu. I want you to have Poppy tattooed on your back in great big swirly writing. If you love me, you'd do it.
5: Look, let me lose a bit of weight first, eh? Then as a celebration, I'll treat myself to a tattoo.
6: Right, deal. I'm putting you on a diet from now, my little chunky chunky. (laughs) chunchy.
0: So, what was the plan with this? It was speculative, wasn't it?
1: This was Graeme Smith got Lizzie to appear on Alan Davis's podcast. And she smashed it so brilliantly. Uh, He said, look, why don't you write a sitcom? And she said, I want Alex Lowe to help me write Aww. it, which was lovely of her. And we got together and we wrote this thing in her kitchen, spent a lot of time laughing. We seemed to spend forever writing this thing, just sitting in her kitchen. She'd make me lunch and all that sort of stuff. And then rather frustratingly, there was something that came on telly with Miriam margulis which is a very similar idea. Oh. And so we probably gave it. I mean, I've spoken to Lizzie about it recently, and she said it wasn't a similar idea. But I, well, similar enough for people to go, oh no, we can't. We've already got something. I think so. That's that's right. So we've never really picked it up and run with it again. But I I mean, it is funny. But maybe we should do something with it. Yeah.
0: And when I was reading through it, obviously a man of a certain age called Alex. I thought, ah. Is it, was that written for oh, you? Oh, yeah. Were you getting, yes, it was. You, you would play that part? Very much yes. so. But he was 46.
1: Know, he gave and I, himself now, a 23-year-old girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we had all sorts. And we had Lisa Tarbuck. We had a character called Lisa, I think. Mm, yeah. But it's one of those things we just spend... I mean, I, I think probably for a lot of writers, you spend forever writing this thing and then it goes somewhere and you also have to have a lot of energy to start hawking it around and keep believing Mm, in it. It's a different skill. I've often... That's what agents are for, I suppose. That's it, that's it. And I don't think... Well, until recently, I've never really had great uh, literary representation. Mm. Mainly because, as I say, I've always see myself as an actor who's sort of doing this on the side. The fact that you wrote a
0: part for yourself that you could perform in, you have done that occasionally. I mean, obviously, you've written a lot on other people's projects, but there was Barry from Watford, although a lot of it was improvised. But you've also written that character that you've referred to earlier. Clinton Baptiste, the Paranormalist. Did he start off in that Peter Kay thing in 1999?
1: No, I uh, worked with Peter Kay in that Peter Kay thing. I played a character called Sparky in an episode about a bingo hall. And Peter then phoned me up not long after and said, have I got a part for you? <laughs> Which was um, Clinton Baptiste. So he wrote that along with Dave Spikey and Neil Fitzmorris, right. And it was this character who was a kind of Clearly based on Derek a sort of long blonde mullet and larger than life camp end of the pier clairvoyant medium psychic. This was for Phoenix Nights. This series. This is for Knights, Phoenix Nights right. on Channel Four, and it was an awful long time ago. It was twenty years ago, and then I revived it for when he did that one Jesus Christ Superstar X Factor. Remember that parody yes, I thing do. that Peter did, and then he asked me to play Clinton on Phoenix Nights live at the Manchester Arena for Comic leaf. So he and I wrote half material each and fashioned it into a sort of 12-minute stand-up thing where I went into the audience and did readings with people. And I loved it. 14,000 people. I loved it so much for an egomaniac to be up there at Manchester Arena on that stage. I really thought this is why the Rolling Stones do this stuff. It was so thrilling Mm. to come out of a trap door with a load of dry ice, do your catchphrase, which was, yeah, right. (laughs) And the whole place erupts. I mean, I can't lay claim to originating Clinton. It's their thing. Mm. But Peter, very kindly, I'd said for a long time, I really want to do Clinton as a stand-up character that I can do around the country and on the comedy circuit. And Peter very kindly let me do that. I just put everything under his nose first. I'd hate for him to think I was taking the mickey and just doing anything and calling it my own. But Bless him. He has been so supportive, and and he listens to what I do with it. I always make sure it's it's got his blessing, and he doesn't hate what I'm doing. So since then, I've been performing Clinton on the the comedy circuit, and I think I've picked up some listeners and audience from listeners to my podcasts. I've done two series and one Christmas special for the Clinton Baptist Paranormal Podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just great. And so that is what I spend most of my time doing now as Clinton Baptiste. Right. Time for your final off cut. Tell us about this one. Yeah, this is a sketch uh, called Edwina, about Edwina Curry, that I wrote in 2012 for a TV pilot called The Week for BBC. And this also featured Alison McGowan and Ronnie Ancona, amongst others.
3: Edwina Curry's publishing more of her diaries, apparently to be serialised in the Daily Mail. We've already learned about her sexual encounters with John Major in a chapter entitled One Shade of Grey. Now the world wonders what scurrilous new gossip has she got in store for us.
2: But surely we can get more than the Daily Mail on board. We had extracts from my first set of diaries all over the papers. I know, Edwina, but I'm just
4: saying we shot our bolt last time with the one big story about your affair with John Major. That's what got all the interest. To put it bluntly, we need something spicy to
2: promote the book. And you've already revealed the John Major thing, so I can't see... I can say more about John Major. Old news. Er, okay, let me think. Um oh I know. I'm sure I once kissed Cecil Parkinson at a Christmas party. In private? A peck under the middle toe. I hardly think. Erm, um, hold on. I once brushed John Prescott's bottom with the back of the hand in a Pat commons. No. Uh Tony Blair touched my leg? Not really. Nick Clegg gave me the eye. Too tame. Give me the bird? Nope. Give me a baby. Give me a rash. Libelous. Spin the bottle with Paddy Ashdown. Go showbiz. Hide the sausage with Anton Dubeck. Butcher? Sexy fun with um Shane Ritchie. Butcher. Guy Ritchie? Lionel Ritchie? Not buying it. Oh, okay, okay. Something like, um it was late. The Commons were taking a vote on a private member's bill on local government boundaries. But what was this? Surely that wasn't Dishy John Burko glancing at me breasts and touching his c- Not really, Edwin. Listen, an enticing chapter heading might be enough. Uh okay, um, Me and Hugh Grant. Too young. Russell Grant. A chapter title. Blunket under the blanket. Mm, Go current. Cameron Clegg and the vibrating egg. Your age group. Over a chair with Lionel Blair. Len Goodman slap my bottom. Too old. Adrian Childs rub my buttocks. No. Eamon Holmes tweet me nipples. (laughs)
0: Again, way too long (laughs) (laughs) Thereby proving your point about being a gag writer It literally is gag, gag, punchline,
1: (laughs) punchline Well it should have been half the length But there you are, that was only a work in progress
0: Now we talked about your writing for performance But that's not actually the only writing work you've done Because in 2005 you created the first of your own range of greetings cards
1: Now that's diversifying Yeah, I used to write Ned Sharon's monologue for Loose Ends, used to do at the top of the show on Radio 4, and someone found out about this and asked me to come and speak to the new Watford Writers Group, and it got into the local paper, and, and Woodmanston Cards, they're a fine art greetings card company, got in touch, they read about it in the Watford Observer, and said, do you want to write a, a set of cards that appeal to sort of middle-class mores, which, believe it or not, in 2005, didn't really exist. It, it was all sort of Hallmark cards. They said do you want to write something that appeals to middle class values whatever that means And I went down to a little shop off the Charing Cross Road that did sort of theatrical ephemera. And I picked up these plays and players and and theatre review and picked out all these lovely photos from about 1910 up to 1960 of theatrical productions where people were being very dramatic Mm. and just put bylines underneath funny captions. And these went out through Woodmanstern as drama queen. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that kept the wolf from the door. So I still do that. That particular range has just finished just now. But my other range, which does quite well, is called uh, Irene and Gladys, which are two old ladies looking at these massive works of art with bubbles coming out of their mouths. And uh, they have some funny take on what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. And then I write some others uh, hysterical histories, which is based on the bio tapestry. And there are various ones which I contribute to from Woodmanstern. But that's another thing that sort of just kept the wolf from the door, which is time-consuming. But it is a flipping relief when the royalties come round. So yeah, that's been quite a useful thing. But I'm always on the lookout for new ideas for greetings cards. Oh, so
0: you're you're a bit of a fingers-in-pies kind of entrepreneurial. Type I am of...
1: a huge fingers-in-pies person. <laughs> I think it's really a bit of a fault. I'm a bit of a workaholic and. It's not a great thing. I often feel really guilty when I go to bed that I haven't done enough. Mm. I think anyone who's self-employed knows, particularly in the current climate, there's no real guarantees of anything. And I I mean, the horror of not being able to pay the mortgage is too great for me. And as I say, my family, not particularly, I don't come from, you meet a lot of wealthy middle-class people who are actors and writers and you think, God, it's only you who can afford to do this so uh this is not pleading Some, you know i grew up in pinner it was hardly uh <laughs> you weren't you doubt mine. i worked not doubt mine but you know i've only ever known working mm. and i love working so yes fingers in pies partly because i've got to earn some money but partly because i love it
0: well we've come to the end of the show
1: how was it for you mr lowe really a real treat oh. to be able a sort of therapy in a way <laughs> A real treat. And quite nice to hear some of those things. And I think I'll be going back to some of those pieces of work and mining them for some funny lines. You should
0: do. There's a lot of very funny content in there, I think.
1: Oh, that's good. That's good. Oh, well, thanks. But, yeah, I mean, lovely to to revisit those things. So thank you for helping me.
0: Well, it's been absolutely fabulous talking to you and quite educational as well. So, Alex Lowe, thank you so much for sharing the contents of your offcut straw with us. Thank you so much. The Offcuts Draw was devised and presented by me, Laura Shavin, with special thanks to this week's guest, Alex Lowe. The Offcuts were performed by Beth Chalmers, Emma Clark, Lizzie Roper, Christopher Kent and Chris Pavlo, and the music was by me. For more details about this episode, visit offcutsdraw.com and please do subscribe, rate and review us. Thanks for listening.